0: Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit Sozosntx.com. Thank you, Jared. Good morning. It's good to be together. Yes. Yes. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but we actually like, we really like to worship around here. And and the cool thing about worship, really, the reason why we worship, we spend more time worshiping than listening to me or somebody else talk. And the reason why that we do that is this is that we believe that our call as a people, our primary call as a people, is to minister to the heart of God and we do that through worship not just in music but with our whole lives but there's something significant about us coming together it has nothing to do with music style of music any of that kind of stuff has everything to do with our hearts being pointed towards God and blessing him and it's not that he needs anything from us but it still means everything to him does that make sense and so we worship not, not like we're not even trying to get anything from God because Ephesians 1-3 says he's already given us everything in Jesus. So it's not that we're trying to pull on him for anything, but it's actually just because of who he is, what he's done for us and how much we love him. And so that's why we sing for a long time. It's not like, hey, we're just going to have Christian karaoke and just do like it's because we actually we believe our call as a people is primarily to be a blessing to the heart of God. Does that sound all right? Cool. So that's why we do that. Um, I just want to take a second. Most of you now have heard the news of shootings in uh, El, El Paso um, and then also in Dayton, Ohio, yesterday. And, and quite honestly, those things are, are grieving to me and and, and sad, um, not only because of what happened yesterday and the victims, but because I think it's an indicator of some stuff that's going on in our nation. And, uh, and, and one of the things that happens in, in these moments is that the political world, probably well-intended, uses those things to politicize because they have uh, what they see as political uh, solutions. But, but uh, and I, I think we need like godly wisdom in the political arena. Absolutely, and we, we have a responsibility as the church to pray in that direction. But, but let me take us up just one level higher, actually to the highest level. I, I think that there is something going on nationally that is incredibly destructive and divisive in our nation. And and I feel like there is a a spiritual battle that has to be won in the place of prayer if we're ever going to see uh, any sort of of, uh, godly victories in the place of politics. And so we have a responsibility to pray. That's on us. It's not the, it's not our, we want our political leaders to pray, absolutely, but it's not on them, it's on us, the, the church of God, the, the actual, the government of God on earth to pray and see things changed. And, and sadly, what I'm, what I'm picking up is that we're often more interested in the church and participating with divisiveness and name-calling instead of turning to prayer to see God bring solutions. And I just think that it's time that we stop playing those games and that we start getting serious about prayer. And that maybe if we spend more time in prayer and less time arguing on social media, then we could actually see things change. Amen? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna all stand And we're going to grab hands, and we're going to stretch across this auditorium, and we're just going to come into agreement, and we're going to pray, and we're going to just believe God that, that strongholds will be defeated as we prayed and that it'll shift the atmosphere. Here's one of the things about prayer. We pray in faith, and we believe in faith, and it doesn't mean that we stop praying. Sometimes prayer is a one-time thing, a one-and-done thing, and sometimes Prayer is knocking, and when Jesus says in in Luke or in uh, Matthew seven that you pray that you knock, it's actually knock, and you keep knocking. the The word there is this picture of knocking a door down with a stick, and I just think that we have a responsibility to say not in our city, not in our region, not in our nation. Amen. And so Jesus, we just we we thank you that you are the Lord of all. You are the King of kings and the King. Of, of politicians and presidents and, all, and world leaders and of governors and of uh, law enforcement and of lawlessness that you're, you're going to reign even over lawlessness and see order brought and so we just decree in Jesus name order in our nation we say no more divisiveness in Jesus name I don't care what side you're on we're, we're going to stop playing sides and we're just going to submit to you King Jesus and Lord we ask Lord that you would move mightily and Lord, we pray for the, the victims that, that were in those situations and, and their family members, God. And we ask for the comfort of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray even for those um, who committed those horrible acts of violence, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you would be near them, God. That you, would, that you would be working on their hearts and their lives, God. And we ask, Lord, even for their families, Lord, for protection. And Lord, I, I thank you that you are moving in the heavenlies. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining me in that. One more bit of, of family business that I think is pretty cool. So, you know, we've been uh, saving money for, for a building, um, and recently we were given um, a, a check for $76,000 towards a building. It's pretty awesome. And and so uh, I feel like this thing is picking up a little bit of steam. We're just praying. We're we're just going to follow the Holy Spirit. We're going to ask for wisdom and believe. I think he's given us some steps, but um, I'm just amazed. And I just want to tell you just just something about this money. Typically, when you get like large sums of money, it comes from people with incredibly large sums of money. But this was actually not a, a gift given out of like Uh, millions and millions of dollars of an estate. This was actually given um, by people who were taking a step of faith, believing in in God's call on them. In fact, as we were talking through the money and and we spent quite a bit of time just talking through making sure this was a wise decision, best decision, it was clearly a decision of faith and obedience. Um, But one family member said, this is the closest thing to the widow's mite that I've ever seen. Um, And so... I'm, like, personally, like, absolutely encouraged, but also uh, incredibly challenged, and so I'm just really grateful. So, God, we just thank you that you're doing something in that way, God, and we just ask, Lord, that you would bring in uh, everything that we need, that you would give us and our team divine wisdom, in Jesus' name, amen. Exciting times. So, Lauren and I have been married 13 years now, I think that's, yep, 13 years, it's been really good. It's probably been better for me than it has been for her. Um, but we started while I was, I was living in England, finishing school, and um, uh, um, on a church planning team, and, uh, and so we met actually at my brother's wedding, and then um, a few months later she came actually on a team, I think that Jim and Debbie had led to uh, Kenya, and a few of uh, the folks on their team stopped by Wolverhampton, England, where I lived, and uh, we caught each other's I for sure in that moment and so um, she knew I needed a little bit of help I think so she sent our whole team uh, an email um, and I responded very quickly Um, and so then we started like emailing and and, and emails uh, led to uh, AOL instant messenger Um, and then and then God said let there be Skype and actually while we were dating Skype kind of evolved and because phone calls were like a dollar a minute and so uh, I I did that a few times and it was well worth it but I was really grateful for Skype. Um, Just voice Skype not video Skype it wasn't uh, that great. Um, And anyways uh, so we began to talk and and I realized man like this isn't like just just talking and like this pretty girl that that I'm just going to talk to but I realized I'm really interested in her. And, um, and we need to actually spend some time together so that we can define our, our relationship. Like, we need to know, okay, how, how's this thing going to work? What's it going to look like? And so I, uh, quite honestly, by faith, um, said, hey, I think you should fly over to England, and I will, as a missionary with no money, pay for half of your plane ticket to get here. <laughs> and so um, I did, and, and uh, actually one of my, my good friends um, had... Uh, just out of the blue, sent $1,000 to me, um, and so it paid um, for, like, more than my half of the plane ticket, and then, like, several days of dates. Let me be clear, and me inviting her to England, she did not stay with me in my house. She stayed with uh, ladies on our team, uh, and, and yeah, but we, we basically dated for about five days, and on, on day four, um, <laughs> it was awesome, y'all. I knew I was way out of my league, so our first date was to London, Um, and then uh, our second date was to Cinderella, um, and I was just kind of doing everything that I could, Um, yeah, so uh, on about day four, um, I realized, hey, I really like her, and it's actually time to have the good old DTR, you know what the DTR is, the define the relationship talk. And it's like, hey, this is cool, but we're going to just take this thing, like, let's just make it, make it really clear how we relate to each other. Some of you have had not-so-good DTRs, right? <laughs> see some of you shaking your head with a big smile and a tear at the same time. <laughs> um, mine went really well, and uh, about a, a little over a year later, we ended up getting married. Uh, so it was pretty awesome. Um, but I, I think a lot of the time, we, uh, we need to define our relationship with God. Like we actually, uh, I think sometimes we don't know, like when you, when you read scripture, there are different people that have different relationships with God and some for some of those people, they have really good relationships that are really beneficial and then there are some people that oppose God and their relationship with God is actually not that great. Like uh, King Saul, for example, his relationship didn't end very well with God, right? And so I think as we read Scripture, some of the time we wonder, where do I fit in this story? Like, I need somebody to help me. Like, am I going to be like King Saul and God's going to remove his spirit from me and and demonic spirits are going to torment me? Or am I going to be like King David who who blows it pretty royally and yet at the same time walks in the favor of God, right? And so I think it's important that we learn how to look at Scripture in the right way so that we know what what it's really saying and how we fit into the story. Ephesians 1, this is going to be just this part in the Passion Translation. I I like the way this translation captures it really well. Uh, Verse 4, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, and it says, And He chose us... To be his very own, joining us to himself even before he laid the foundation of the universe. Because of his great love, he ordained us so that we would be seen as holy in his eyes with an unstained innocence. An unstained innocence. That's really good. We'll come back to that. For it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children. Say adopt. Through our union, say union. With Jesus, the Anointed One, so that His tremendous love, that cascades over us, would glorify His grace. For the same love, He has for us, beloved Jesus, He has for His beloved Jesus, He has for us. And this unfolding plan b- brings Him great pleasure. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this one time to you. It's not gonna be up there, but in uh, the NIV. Says it slightly differently, um, but really well, and it says this: For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his good pleasure and will. Here's the point: Before the foundation of the earth, God chose this—that he was going to have sons. That he purposed it. And if you want to know what the purpose of the story of God is, what, what I believe Scripture is declaring is that God started with a plan to have sons and he's determined to finish that way. That, that it's not just, hey, there's this story that's unfolding and eventually we get to go to heaven. But no, that actually God's intent was this, is that he would have sons. Let me say this about the word sons. The next three weeks we're going to be in a series called The Journey of Sonship. And and we're going to use the word sons a lot. And that's actually not exclusive to men. And it does not exclude women. The word sons is actually often used in Scripture for both men and women. And I think um, that Galatians 3 captures this really well. It says... There is neither, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Here's what Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this, that God is not, this is in Acts 10, God is not a respecter of persons. And so he's not interested in your rights as if does it matter if I'm a woman or a man but actually we all have the right of sonship and the reason why that word is sons is because women and men get the right of sonship which is to be like their father but also to have uh, full rights to the whole inheritance of the kingdom and so ladies it's actually it's right for you to be called sons in this way So if you can handle it, I've said this before, you get to be sons. I've got to be part of the bride. That's just the way this thing works, all right? (laughs) Last week I talked about this for a minute, but I'm going to go back to it. In Matthew 6, verse 9, what we see actually in Luke 11 is that Jesus' disciples have have just taught uh, or just asked him to teach them how to pray. And Jesus responds this way, when you pray, you pray, our Father. In in Luke, it actually says my father, but but both of those are actually accurate because the word there is Abba. Say Abba with me. In the word Abba, Jesus is saying something significant when he chooses the word Abba. Because you see, in that day, Aramaic, which the word Abba is an Aramaic word, Aramaic was like their common language. That's the way that they uh, connected with each other, that they spoke normally to each other. But when they were praying or using religious language, they would use the Hebrew. And so they would change the language and they would pray in Hebrew. And and it was like this religious language. And what you'll find is that many of the world's religions have religious language that is actually very different from the language of the day. But Jesus chose to teach them to pray in the language of the day because what He was saying is that there is something about the way you relate to Me that is, is in the same way that you would relate to your father. And, and so he says, you pray uh, Abba, which means our father, it also means my father. And here's something that's interesting. This is one of the first times that we see God related in all of Scripture to as father. In the Old Testament, what we see is that he's described in metaphor and in simile as like a father, but not that, he's, not that we have the ability to relate to him as our father. And so what Jesus is, is doing is He's saying, look, you get the same kind of access to the Father that I have. You get the same kind of relationship to the Father that I have. And so you get to pray, Abba, which is really like this way of saying Daddy. And I think sometimes it's uncomfortable for us to say to God, Daddy, Father, I'm going to approach you in the same way that I would approach our, my Father. And there's a few reasons why that may be difficult. One, you may not have that kind of relationship with your dad, but two, for you to begin to see God as Father begins to change everything. And you see, when we begin to relate to God as our Father, as my Father, that that collectively He's our Father, which makes us brothers and sisters, but but then He's also my Daddy. It changes the way that I see Him. It changes the way that I see myself, that I relate to Him. And so I don't have to pray in this huge, fancy language, but instead I pray to, to the One who is fathering me. And I believe that if there is any type of relationship that should define the way that we relate to God, it's a father-son relationship. That's actually become like the lens that I read all of Scripture through because I believe that, that the way that we see God should be not just as if He were our Father, but as our Father. As the Father like no other Father. The Father that's always been fathering us. And so... He's saying, approach me like your daddy. And and I believe when we begin to grasp that the work of salvation was not simply a legal transaction, but it was actually adoption into a family with God as our Father, it'll change the way that we see everything. Go with me to one of my very favorite stories. I usually just go to my favorite things. Um, Luke chapter 15. We call this the story of the prodigal son. I think it's better than that. I think it's actually the story of the perfect father. And what we see is this. In, in, in the first story there, there's, there's three parables that Jesus is telling. Um, to the Pharisees have asked this question. Uh, or made this statement, and they're saying, hey, you care more about all these sinners, and you eat with them, and, and basically what about us? And so Jesus tells them this story in response. And first, he tells them the parable of the lost sheep, and I, I think this is an important story. Steve talked a lot about actually lostness last week, and, and, and I think this is an important story that, that we get, is that sometimes we get lost because we wander off. Like, it, it's, it's not that the... the, 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 the that we like, don't know who the good shepherd is, but we just, in rebellion, we wander off. And sometimes it's usually like, like we just take a couple of steps, and before we know it, like the nature of sin is that it will lead us to, to death, to, to total separation from God. And so sometimes we wander off. But here's what's important to know, that even in your wandering off, there's a shepherd who is a good father that comes chasing after you. That he's pursuing you. He's not like, hey, I'm, I'm just going to stay here, and if He wants to come back, He can come find me. But what you will find is that every turn you've taken in your life, the Father ha- ha- has not just been standing at a distance waiting for you to come to Him, but He's actually been pursuing you. The second story I, I love because I-, I think a lot of people are lost, not simply because they wander off, but because of circumstances. And so there's this lady who has these ten coins, and she loses one of them. And, it- and it's not that the coin did anything to get lost, it just got lost. And sometimes we, we get lost, and it's not so much that we get lost um, because we choose to believe differently or anything like that, but just life happens, and we find ourselves like, isolated and alienated, and it's like we don't even know where we are anymore. And there's probably some of you uh, here this morning who, who maybe you were like that sheep and you wandered off um, somewhat intentionally, and there are probably others of you here, that, that your lostness is just, it's just, well, I didn't even realize, like, it's, like I gave my life to Jesus, but I just didn't even realize that I actually feel really, really lost. And, and I believe that it's the heart of the Father that He is pursuing you. But let's get, let's get to the, the big story here. I think this is the gospel within the gospels, and we'll start in verse 11. It says this, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now this is not an uncommon story. This was actually, Jesus isn't simply making up a scenario. This is a common scenario in Jesus' day and actually throughout even the whole world outside of the Jewish world that, that, a, a fa- that a son may come to his father. And oftentimes, by the way, fathers divided their estate and their inheritance among their kids even before they passed away it was kind of like they went into retirement and so they said okay kids this is all yours now you're in charge of managing the estate and so you're responsible for it and the way that that dividing would work is this is that the oldest son would get half of the estate and the second son um, if there's just one son uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the uh, first son would get twice what every other son would get. And so, so the first son gets the, the bulk of the estate. The older brother there gets, gets most of it. And then the younger brother uh, gets half of what his older brother gets. And so he comes to them and, and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Another interesting point is that when you ask for your inheritance, though, before your father dies... What you're saying is essentially, I I don't really care what you have for me uh, in the way of relationship, but I just want my stuff. It's it's really a dishonorable act. And it says, so not long after that, the younger son got all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he, he had spent some time there, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. For a Jewish uh, man to, to want to eat, to be working for a Gentile, and then to want to eat pig slop, is like to be at the lowest of lows. He's desperate, and it says this: when he came to his senses, and I'm going to argue that that phrase there: when he came to his senses. Uh, how many he he said, "How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving? I think he said when he came to his senses, he realized, hey, I'm hungry, and I want some food, and I know that I, that if I just go work for my dad, who I've disowned that that maybe." Um, I'll I'll just be fine. And so I think his senses essentially were his hunger. He was just hungry. He's like, hey, let me me figure out what I can do to eat. I think his senses were desperation. I don't think he realized actually how good his father was in that moment. And so it says he set out to go back to his father and uh, say to him, so now he's planning his speech. Have you ever done that? Like you've blown it. You've really dishonored somebody. And so now you're like working on the speech. Like, okay. Let me see how I can, like, do my very best to get back into here, right? And so he starts planning his speech, and he, he says, Father, and now he's saying this to himself, not, not to his dad yet, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up, and he went to his father. All of this is very normal, in their culture. So Jesus, is, his hearers would have been like, yeah, we, we, we get the story. And it, and it says, so he got up and he went to his father, and here's what it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. His father saw him while he was a long way off. I'd like to suggest to you it's because his father was watching for him. His father knew, my son's going to come home one day. And so I, I, I imagine probably periodically throughout the day, the father going and he's, he's looking down that path, maybe over a few hills to see, hey, is my son on the road yet? Is, is he coming this way? And he, he, see, this, is, this again is all normal. They actually have custom ritual ceremony for this moment. And here's what's supposed to happen in this moment. Kenneth Bailey, um, who lived in the Middle East for a long time, he's a, he's a scholar, theologian, and, and so he studied their culture, and he, 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 he discovered um, what would happen in that moment, and it's called the Kazazaw ceremony. And in the Kazaza ceremony, here's what would happen. The oldest son would be the ringleader for this ceremony, and what he would do is he would gather up all the townspeople, everybody in the villages nearby, and they would all have clay pots. And they would come with the clay pots and and they would gather around this this wayward child, this prodigal, and they would begin to smash the pots. And they would say, shame on you. Shame on you. And and it would be absolutely humiliating. And so the the son who had been a prodigal had to know that what he was headed for was the Kazazah ceremony. That he was about to have everybody knowing his business and shaming him. Have you ever felt shame? Have you ever felt, it's like this alienation thing that it's like, man, I am just so unworthy that, that I, I just don't even want to be around anybody. And yet this guy was so hungry and so desperate that he said, forget the shame, I'm going home. But something happened in that moment. The father who had always been looking for a son, and I suppose that the reason why he was always looking for his son was this, that he had a plan. He had a plan to outrun the law ceremony. And so what he did is this, it says that he had to run, and in, in that day, a, a man over 40 would never run. The reason why he would never run is, is, is this, is that he would have to pick up his robe, and when he picked up his robe, he would expose his knees, and in that day, in that culture, it was shameful for a, for a man to expose his knees. And so what the father did is this. He said, I am taking on the shame of the son so that that he won't have to endure the shame that's coming to him. And instead, I'll take that on me. And and I think many of us have blown it in ways where we can relate, where we've just felt so ashamed. Like so ashamed that I I can't relate to anybody. I can't relate to God. I I remember struggling in my teens with with some, some sexual stuff and I just felt so ashamed. In fact, I would be asked to, to, to lead certain things in youth group. Even in school, I got elected to a school cal- council position that I didn't run for. And there was just like this favor on my life for that. And yet, I was wrestling with shame and I didn't understand that God had actually come to take my shame away. And so I said, no, I, I can't do that. I didn't explain to anybody. That would have been too shameful. But I think we've got these things in our lives that are actually holding us back from approaching the Father. And what we forget is that He's the one that took our shame on Him. And so we have nothing to be ashamed of. You, have, you can't hide from the Father, and so there's no reason to hold back from the Father. You have to understand that Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to bear our shame for us. He wanted to carry our shame for us, and so we don't need to be ashamed to come to him because he's already paid the price for our shame. And so often we get stuck under such bondage of shame. And here's one way you you can tell if you're stuck under shame, or a couple of ways. One is that you distance yourself from people. And, and that even from a distance, when you see people talking, you assume they're talking about you and it's not good. Another, another way that we, we, we try to deal with shame is this, is that we blame. And blame is simply the shifting of shame. Like Adam. I, 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 I didn't eat the fruit first, God. That woman that you gave me, it's like I'm going to everybody but me it's not me it's it's you God you gave her to me and and you put the tree there and it's and it's her she she did it and then I you know I just ate, ate of it and I think so often we just try we try to find every excuse We try to blame everybody all that temptation I just I'm just stuck and I just I'm, I'm I, there's no way I'm just it's just it was like I didn't even mean to I fell into sin let me say this it is impossible for you to fall into sin Like I'm just walking and I tripped and then I sinned. No, you don't fall into sin. That's not what sin is. Sin is always a choice. It may be conscious. It may be subconscious. But it's always a choice. And and so we got to stop blaming our circumstances, blaming the people around us. You chose to be there. And so, so often, shame keeps us from the one that wants to remove our shame from us. And I just think we just gotta stop. Let's just, let's just quit it. And, and I really believe this morning, even as we take communion a little bit and have people here for ministry, I really believe that God wants to remove shame from us. And so let's, let's keep going. It says, um, The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called the son, be called your son. So he's going down the speech, right? And it says, but the father said to his servants, you notice the father never responds to the son. He's like, I'm not listening to you. You don't get to determine the way this thing goes. It's on me. And so he's not even paying attention and he interrupts him. He says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring the ring and put it on his finger and the sandals on his feet. He's not even saying, hey, son, this is what's going to happen to you. He's not even giving the son a choice in the matter. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found, and so they begin to celebrate. Those things are not just things. When it says, quick, bring the best robe, that robe would have been for the guest of honor. So he would have had like a a visiting like dignitary, somebody really worthy of respect. And what they would do is when he would come into the house or get to the estate, what they would do is they would put the very best robe on him, and that robe was the robe of honor. Did that son do anything to deserve honor? No. Did that father care? No. The reason why he put the robe on the son was because he was his son. One of the things that I'm convinced of is that Everything in the kingdom is free and nothing is earned. Everything. Everything. And, and the reason why it's free and not earned is this. is because it's all birthed out of our relationship as sons, and you do nothing to earn your sonship. It is a free gift from God. And from that place, God loves to bless his kids. And so we don't earn it. What we do and, what we see and the way we see it multiply is we steward it, but we never earned it. It's all grace. And so, he, p- he puts the robe on him, and what he's doing is he's restoring honor to him. I actually believe that the God, creator of the universe, who is your Father, not just like a father, he is your Father, that he honors you. And that right there is incredibly humbling. But it doesn't stop there. It says, then he put on the best robe, and then he put the ring on his finger. Here's the interesting thing about the ring on his finger. That ring was not just like a fancy ring, but it was actually like the family credit card. It would have the seal of the family. And whenever you do business in that day, what you do is you, you dip that thing in wax or in ink and, you, and you, you stamp the paper with your ring. So what the father is doing to the son who squandered everything or, ha- or a third of everything, what he's doing is he's actually giving him back the credit card for the family. He, he's restoring everything. To that son. And I'd like to suggest to you that even where you've squandered the grace that God has put on your life, even where you've blown it time and time again, what the Father wants to do is give you back your authority. And so then he does this he puts sandals on his feet. You see, somewhere along the way, he probably would have sold his sandals, which were a sign of sonship, for maybe some food. Maybe he wore him out working as a slave for somebody, but anyways, he didn't have shoes on his feet. And the n- not having shoes was a sign of slavery. And so what he did in that moment and when, when he had sandals put on his son's feet is he was restoring sonship to him. I believe this morning, spiritually, prophetically, God wants to put sandals on your feet. He wants for you to recognize that you've been adopted into the family of God, that you're his kid. And that there is nothing that can separate you from that position in him. And so, then he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. It's costly to kill a fattened calf because it would have been worth more money later on, and yet it's worth celebrating. He says, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so, they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son in the field, when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. He said, your brother has come. And he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So he went out and he pleaded with him, but he answered the father, look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never came uh, you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, he's distancing himself from him. He hasn't taken him back as a brother who has squandered your property, thinking really mine too, with, the, with prostitutes, uh, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. And here's the key. I think this is one of the keys to, to all of Scripture. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Many of us in this room probably can identify at one point in our story like the younger brother, but often we identify actually as the older brother. You see, both of them actually had orphan mindsets. One of them had an orphan mindset that led them to act orphaned all off on their own. But meanwhile, the older brother was an orphan in his very own home. He didn't recognize who his father was and how good he was, and so... Well, the younger brother squandered it in wild living, the older brother was acting like an orphan all at home because he thought that he had to earn his position with the father. He's saying, look at everything I've done and you're still not treating me like a son. And the father said, I I was never treating you based on your performance. I was always treating you based on our relationship. You understand God's not treating you based on your performance. He's actually treating you based on his goodness made uh, manifest through Jesus. And so God isn't giving you what you deserve. He's actually giving you and I what we deserve because, or what Jesus deserved because we're now positioned in the same place that Jesus was in relationship to God. And when we begin to recognize, hey, I, I, I don't have to earn anything. It's not, hey, God, w- what can you do for me? When he's actually saying, look, everything I have is yours. That's, I started off by saying that. That's Ephesians 1.3. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And we recognize that we don't have to perform for God, that it's actually not a performance-based relationship. And I think that's one of the things that we actually miss in the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, they got punished based on their sin. In the New Covenant, we get grace based on Jesus' performance at the cross. And so when he said it's finished, it's no longer that God's interacting with us on the basis of performance. He's actually interacting with us on the basis of sonship. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our sin. The reason why sin is called sin is because it's a label put on things that are dangerous to you. All right. But it does mean this, that your relationship with God is not going to change on God's behalf because of something that you do. God's not relating to you on that basis. He's not relating to you on the basis of performance. He's relating to you on the basis of sonship. You've been adopted. And and I love Paul just captures that so well. He says uh, in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, we're going to read these couple of verses and then we'll be done. Galatians 4. Verses, verse 4, we'll go all the way to 7. It says, But when the time set forth had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Because we are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, which cries out, Abba. Say Abba with me again. Abba, Abba Father. And it's interesting because Paul would have written this in Greek, but he included that, word, that Aramaic word for father there because he wanted them to recognize that it's not this like far-off statement, but it's like daddy-father. You get that kind of relationship. And so he protected it there. He said, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God made you an heir. What Paul is saying is that the gospel is this that it was always God's heart that you and I would be children of God, that we would be adopted into the family of God. And, and so Jesus came and he died on the cross so that he could buy us back. It was like the down payment of adoption so that he could buy us back into the family of God. And then he ascends and he sits next to the Father in heaven. And what Acts 2 says is that when the Son when the ascended into heaven, that the, the Father poured out on the Son the Spirit. Because we're in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we're now positioned to receive the spirit of God into our lives. And that spirit is what marks us as sons. And here's the thing about being marked as a son. A son is always supposed to look like and represent his father. So you have to understand what Jesus was doing through through that moment and everything that he did, he was, he was bringing us back to what we were always meant to be, which was children of God made in the image of God, representing God to the whole world. And now the Holy Spirit empowers us in that way. Romans 8 with me real quick. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's why we're a Spirit-led people. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Let me say this. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but This whole thing about sonship doesn't mean that we don't serve God and it doesn't mean that we're not in the army of God. All of that language is still really good and valuable, but our primary way of relating to God is not from the place of slaves that would be afraid of their their master, but as children who would be in love with their father. And so he's saying, look, you're not going to be slaves, but you're actually going to be sons. And he says, rather the spirit you received about, uh, brought about your adoption to sonship, and by it we cry, and he, he says it again, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. George MacDonald, a Scottish pastor, poet, says this, The word used by St. Paul does not simply imply that God adopts children that are not His own. Rather, that a second time he fathers his own, and he will make them tenfold, yea, infinitely their father. He will have them one with himself. You see, when, when God created the whole world, we were actually I like, considered the offspring of God, but yet we were, an al- we were alienated from him, and so then, through Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit, he adopts us again as his kids. Here's the interesting thing about adoption in the first century, is that if you had a son, you had every right to disown your son. Like if, if as a father, you could say, hey, this is, this is not my son. I'm not pleased with him. He, he, he's cast off from me. But if you ever adopted a son, you had no legal right to ever disown them. That was like a, a permanent decision that they would have made. And so God's not looking to disown you. He's not looking to figure out how he can distance himself from you. He's wanting to be near, and he's done everything that it takes to be near you, so that we could live with him. You see, salvation is not simply about a ticket to heaven, but it's adoption into a family. You've been adopted. And one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to receive Jesus as our Savior, which is the right starting point. It's the entrance into the family. But I think it's key that we learn how to receive God as our Father. And we say, God, i, I, I let you father me. I invite your fathering into my life. Maybe you've had a horrible father. Maybe you're missing a father. Maybe your father's passed away or was never in your life. Maybe you've had a really good father, but I, I, I want to say to you, no matter what your interaction with father or your lack of interaction with father has been, that God wants to father you. That he, he, he wants to treat you like a kid. He wants to be in your everyday life. He wants to pass off everything that he has to you. George McDonald goes on to say that the hardest, the gladdest thing in all the world is to cry father from a full heart. I believe that it's both difficult to come to that place where I'm going to relate to God as my Father and allow Him to father me. But I also believe that it's what all of our hearts long for. That we long to relate to God as our Father. That we long to allow Him to father us. John Eldridge, in one of my very favorite books, I, I highly recommend it. It's called Fathered by God. He writes this. One of our deepest issues of life and faith is the belief that we are on our own. And if any good thing is going to happen, we'll have to arrange for it. Essentially what he's saying is that we're orphaned. And I believe this morning God wants to begin to break into your world and break off an orphan mindset. Whether you're orphaned because of of bad performance or maybe you're orphaned because of religious performance and thinking, hey, let me outdo everybody and show God how good I am. Let me just say this. God's not impressed with your performance either way. It doesn't move him. He, he's moved by Jesus' performance at the cross. And so he wants, to, uh, he wants you to allow him to father you. He's not going to force it on you, but he wants to relate to you in that way. And what he wants to do in relating to you in that way is that he he wants, to allow, he wants you to allow him to begin to arrange for your life. Would you stand with me? Let's let's pray this as a declaration. So I'm going to say a few lines and then you repeat it. Abba, Abba, Father, Daddy. I receive you into my life. I invite you to father me. I trust you to father me. I've been adopted. I've been adopted. I'm, a child of God. I'm a child of God. I belong to him. I belong to him. Everything he has is mine. Everything he has is mine. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you, for raising from the dead, Thank you for raising from the dead, for ascending into heaven, for ascending into heaven and receiving the Holy Spirit for me, and the Holy Spirit from me that, I adopted, that I could be adopted, marked in God's family. In God's family. Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit, I just welcome you into my life. Thank you for teaching me how to live, for filling me with the love of the Father. for leading me, for for comforting me. me. I choose to follow your lead. lead. In Jesus' name. name. Amen. Amen. So in a moment, we're going to have communion, and we're also going to have some ministry teams. This morning, our our teams want to pray for you. If you've got anything going on, you have pain in your body, you want to receive Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, give your life to Him. Maybe you, you just need somebody to pray with you through some wounds that you've even received from your father or lack of a father. I, I really believe that as we allow God to minister to us in that place, it, it makes it so much easier to to receive God as our Father. Um, they, they would love to, to pray with you, really just for about anything. Um, I'm going to join them in, in praying, and, and one of my very favorite things to do is just to to bless people as children of God. And so if that's something that you need this morning, our team would love to do that. I would doubly love just to do that real quick over your life. But we have been seeing God just do incredible things as people come f- forward humbly to receive ministry, and so I just encourage you just to position yourself humbly before God and allow Him to minister to you. For communion this morning, we're we're trying not to be um, super disorganized, and so what we're going to ask that you do, even if you're sitting on the far right, leave down the the far left of your aisle, and then come to, there's going to be a a team here, a team right over there, and a team right here, and so you're just going to walk down to them. They're going to serve you. What that looks like is they're going to hold out a plate with a, with a cracker representing the body of Jesus that was, that was beaten so that we could be made whole. And what they're going to do is they're going to offer that to you. You'll take that and then you'll dip it in, in the, the juice representing the blood of Jesus, which seals our covenant with Jesus. It's a covenant and, and the purpose of a covenant is that we could be one with God. And so it's God's desire to be one with us. And so what we're doing is we're just declaring the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and, and, and it's actually a celebration. And so what I want you to do is actually just take just a moment to prepare your heart. Just say, God, I, just, I recognize that you've forgiven me, and I just receive forgiveness for everything in my life. Thank you for taking my sin from me as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for bringing me back into your family, for adopting me. And Lord, we just thank you, God, Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life for us. We thank you that you love us so much that you went to the cross and you didn't just purchase our freedom from sin. By the way, I just want you to know that he didn't just pay the consequences of your sin, but he purchased the freedom from your, from your sin so that you don't have to sin anymore. There is nothing in your life that is so powerful that the blood of Jesus can't break it. And sometimes we believe lies that, hey, I'm just stuck in this thing. It's just my deal to deal with. It's not your deal to deal with. It was Jesus' deal to deal with, and He already dealt with it, and so you can release it to Him. But He also paid, in that, in that same payment, He paid for your healing. For the healing of your mind, the healing of your heart, the healing of your body. And so, uh, we, just, we thank You, God, that You're even healing bodies in this place. So prayer team, you guys can come forward too. Jesus, we just love you. Thank you for your work in our hearts this morning. Amen.